0: Good morning, church. My name is Brent. I'm the youth pastor here at Evergreen. Today, I will be sharing the scripture and the sermon with you. This morning, our scripture reading is from the book of 1 Peter. We're in a sermon series called Faith, Hope, and Love, and it's about the book of 1 Peter. Please follow along in your Bibles or use the screens. I'll be reading 1 Peter 4, 7 through 11 from the New International Version. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength that God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. The word of the Lord. Let's start with a prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we come before you today aware of the reality of, this, of sin. Both sin within our hearts, but also with the world at large. It seems that it is ever pervasive. God, sometimes uh, we just become so afraid of the sin that is around us. Let us not do that, Lord. Instead, let us put our hope in you. In your power, Lord, today speak to us. Give us the words we need to hear. Shine light where there is darkness. pray this, Lord, in your holy name. Amen. So last week, Peter began his sermon by talking about creation. He said, there is a creator. And this creator designed us for a purpose. We didn't come here by some random chance. We are here for a reason. And it's because there's a creator, because we were put here for a reason, that there's such thing as right and wrong. Because God designed us for a purpose. He designed us to be bearers of his image. We were created in God's image. And when we are aligned to God's will, then we're reflecting that image back to God. And other people can see that. However, so often we deviate from what we're created for. We do things we weren't meant to do. And when we do that, that is what the Bible defines as sin. Sin is going against the will of God. It's being misaligned. Um, also, something Peter talked about is the word epithumia. Epithumia is a word that the Apostle Peter uses often in the book of 1 Peter. And it simply means to over-desire. Epithumia meaning over desire. um, Sorry, epi meaning over, thumia meaning desire. So often we desire inordinately or we desire absolutely things that are not God. So we desire these things in and above God. And when we do that, those desires then become an idol. Today we are surrounded by a world that is enslaved to epithumia. We can see it wherever we go. This is a broken and hurting world. Simply turn on the news, you'll hear about the war in Syria, or you'll hear about corrupt politicians. You hear about money laundering. um, You hear about bullies in school. Sin is wherever we go. It can be within our own church. It can be in our schools. It can be in our communities. And when we're faced with this reality of a broken and hurting world, I think it's really easy to turn to fear, to be afraid that this sin and this brokenness is this ever-present force that's pressing it down against us. And uh, when we turn to fear and we start just fearing this sin and we start fearing this brokenness, then we begin to try to wage a war against sin, both within ourselves and also within the world at large. We try to get over our own sin simply by being white-knuckled and trying really hard to not sin. And I think we try to fight others' sin by making sure people know the truth and pounding it into them. Christians, uh, we have been trying to wage a war against sin for quite some time now. We try to fight ideologies we disagree with and to defend what we agree with. We feel, again, like there's this powerful force that's pressing against us. I know sometimes in the past, in high school, in college, um, sometimes in seminary too, I have felt threatened by people's opinions and ideals. And sometimes during conversations uh, in class, for instance, when someone is saying something that I just feel in my heart of hearts to be wrong, I start having this sort of holy fire, this holy... um, Uh, self-righteousness, where I'm like, I have to tell them the truth. Someone has to speak up here. I think to myself, can they really think that? And then I make it my job to set them straight. I think in the past, in my pursuit to be right and to set people straight, sometimes I have desired to set them straight more than I have desired to love them. You might say I, I had epithumia for setting people straight. I over-desired for people to know what's right. I think if you spend some time looking at fellow Christians' comments on Facebook, you'll see that many people are in the same boat. Uh, It really doesn't matter what the topic is. But whenever I look on my Facebook feed, I can just, whatever the topic is, I just see comment after comment left by fellow Christians which are scathing. And it, it just looks like these comments are filled with hate. And uh, unfortunately, sometimes the internet has a way of distancing us. And when we're not seeing that person face-to-face and looking in their eyes, we just go crazy with our typing. We just start typing comment after comment. And uh, it can really be damaging and hateful and hurtful. And uh, I think sometimes my Christian friends, even me sometimes, have this, I, have this um, job where they think it's their job to be the truth police on Facebook and let everyone know what's right. When we seek to be right and to make sure people know they're wrong, and we do not do it out of love, that is when we sin. In the very process of trying to fight sin, sometimes I think we fall into the trap of becoming self-righteous, and we make an idol of what we believe the right thing is. So what do we do with sin? If we cannot wage a war against it, the burk the book, sorry, of 1 Peter answers this question. See, we don't fight sin, God does. That's God's job. It is Jesus Christ who puts sin to death, not us. That battle is too big for us, and we are not worthy to fight it. Peter starts off his book with his bang. The first sermon that we preached about this book was about heaven and hell and the new earth and the new heaven. Peter starts with the hope of salvation. Our hope against sin is Jesus Christ, what he did, what he's doing now, and what he will do. Jesus' death and resurrection took away the stain of sin. It took away death's power. And then, sin will be finally and completely done away with in the end days, during the judgment Peter, the uh, pastor Peter, not the apostle, last week talked um, about how in those days, in the end days, people that desired separation from God will be finally granted that separation. And to those who put their hope in Jesus Christ, they will enter the heaven reality. The kingdom of heaven will be theirs. Our hope is in this day that there will come a day when sin is no more and is dealt with finally and completely. And that sin is dealt with by Jesus Christ. That is the hope that we put our faith in. In Peter, the apostle's mind, we have to start with the end, the hope of salvation, to figure out how we are to live in the meantime. That is why the passage starts off with, the end of all things is near, therefore, therefore, Because of what happens in the last days, because of that hope, therefore, we have a way to live in the meantime. And this is described in verse 7. That way we are to live is to love one another deeply, for love covers a multitude of sins. The word for love in this text is agape. Now, there's five different words in the Greek language for love. Phileo means brotherly love. Eros, romantic love. And there's a few others. But agape love, agape love is the word that the biblical writers used for God's love. Agape is a love that's unending, unstoppable, unyielding. It will not stop. God's love seeks us out. It pursues us. It gets to know us personally. And it will not let us go. And this agape love is a self-sacrificing love. It does not expect anything in return. Peter puts even more emphasis on it by saying not only should we agape, but we should agape deeply. The word here, deeply, translated as either deeply, strenuously, or fervently. We are to deeply, strenuously love one another with Jesus' love. This is a pretty hard task, guys. It is this agape love that covers a multitude of sins. To cover sins here means to deal with sins, not to ignore them, not to cancel them out, not that sins don't matter if you love, rather that Jesus' love has the power to deal with sins. God is on it. He has it taken care of. Peter knew very well what it meant that agape love covers a multitude of sins. See, Peter was with Jesus for three years. He saw the way that Jesus loved people. Right from the beginning, when Jesus calls him off of the boat to become a fisher of men, Peter's life was changed by the power of this agape love. In Peter's Jewish culture, there was a fear associated with the sinners. Certain people were labeled as sinners, others labeled as righteous. And then once that was your label, you were kind of stuck with it. Now, people like prostitutes and tax collectors were labeled sinners, but also even the diseased and the crippled were labeled sinners. It was the belief that their affliction was because God had punished them for their sin or for their parents' sin. Anyone who was labeled a sinner was avoided by the religious. The religious leaders avoided them at all costs because they were afraid of the sinners they thought that their sin was contagious that it would rub off on them if they associated with the unclean that they would become dirty so the sinners stayed outcasts in this society and it is into this atmosphere of sin that jesus steps in jesus had zero fear of sin Jesus was not afraid that their sin would be contagious. Rather, he believed it was his agape love that was contagious. He didn't think by interacting with sinners that their sin would rub off on him. Instead, Jesus believed that by interacting with sinners, that his love and his kindness would rub off on the sinner. Jesus went right up to sinners. He interacted with them. He talked with them. In fact, it is Matthew, the tax collector, labeled as a sinner, who Jesus goes up to and says, come follow me. And then after that, Matthew, the tax collector, invites him to his house. And Jesus then eats and drinks with the sinners. And there's even some religious leaders who observe this. They call one of Jesus' disciples out, and they say, why are you eating with those sinners? And Jesus said, it is not, I've not come for the healthy. It is the sick who need a doctor. Jesus did not start his relationship by damning the sinners, but instead he began a relationship with people by loving them, by giving them acceptance where the Pharisees gave them condemnation. Jesus' method was to love people where they were at, despite their sin, to show them love and acceptance and then trust in the power of this love, to convict and to convert them. His love had this power where when he, interacted with people, he was able to remove the shame and the guilt they had that stopped them from encountering the Holy Spirit. And once their shame was removed, they were able to make changes in their life as a result of this agape love. In Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48, Jesus' agape love touches and heals a woman who has been bleeding for 12 years. Look At Luke chapter 8, verses 40 through 48. Now, when Jesus returned, a crowd welcomed him, for they were all expecting him. Then a man named Jairus, a synagogue leader, came and fell at Jesus' feet, pleading with him to come to his house, because his only daughter, a girl of about 12, was dying. As Jesus was on his way, the crowds almost crushed him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years, but no one could heal her. She came up immediately behind him and touched the edge of his cloak, and immediately her bleeding stopped. Who touched me? Jesus asked. When they all denied it, Peter said, Master, the people are crowding and pressing against you. But Jesus said, Someone touched me. I know that power has gone from me. Then the woman seeing that she could not go unnoticed, came trembling and fell at his feet. In the presence of all the people, she told why she had touched him and how she'd been instantly healed. Then he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. You see, in this story, what happens is Jairus, who is a synagogue leader, he is thought of as important in his community. He was one of the religious elite And so it made sense to everyone why this rabbi who was known for healing people would go to heal Jairus' daughter. But then, this woman who has been bleeding for 12 years touches his cloak. Now, back then, if you were a woman in this condition, likely your husband would divorce you. And you'd be left out on the streets. You'd be uh, ostracized and you'd be an outcast from your family. So likely, for all we know, She could have been homeless. Certainly, she was an outcast. Sitting there abandoned for 12 long years of this constant hemorrhaging. Hemorrhaging. This woman was an outcast. She was labeled as unclean. And she felt unclean. She must have had shame. And so when Jesus calls her up and points her out, he's not mocking her or making fun of her. There's a reason why he stops in his tracks. He wants to not just heal her physically, he wants to restore her, to heal her mind, body, and soul, to restore her place in the community. By calling her out and having this woman say her story in front of everyone, he was making Jairus, the synagogue leader, wait. He was saying, this woman is just as important as Jairus. This woman is accepted and loved by me. He affirmed her humanity And so when he did this, she was restored to her community. People saw that she was worthy to be loved. And something else that's really interesting is when he says your faith has made you well or has healed you, this word in Greek is sozo, which means save or to be saved. This word sozo, to be saved, was used throughout the New Testament for salvation. Jesus says you have been saved. And Jesus does this again and again when he interacts with people. He'll just suddenly forgive their sins, sometimes without people even asking asking for it. In the story of a man who was paralyzed on a mat, this man is lowered down, and the first thing Jesus said is, your sins are forgiven. And people are suddenly outraged. They're like, how can you forgive his sins? He never even asks for his sins to be forgiven. He never even confesses his sins. Jesus just right off the bat says, your sins are forgiven. And then, after that, Jesus doesn't uh, then tell him all the ways he's supposed to live. Jesus simply says, get up, take your mat, and walk away. And he leaves it at that. When Jesus uh, saved the prostitute who was about to be stoned, or this woman who was caught in adultery, this woman is brought before him, everyone wants to stone her. And then Jesus says that famous line, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Suddenly everyone leaves. And then Jesus simply says, go and sin no more. He doesn't tell her why she's sinful or what's bad or anything, because she already knows that. So after showing his agape love, taking away her shame and guilt, he simply says, go and sin no more. And he's trusting in the power of the Holy Spirit to convert and to convict her. He doesn't have to tell her spiritual laws or this and that. He simply says, go and sin no more. Peter himself was a recipient of this gracious agape love. Jesus knew that Peter was going to reject him three times. At the Last Supper, Jesus said, Simon Peter, you will reject me three times. And Simon Peter said, surely I won't. Jesus said, I tell you the truth before the rooster crows. You Will deny me three times. So, Peter denies him three times. Jesus dies on the cross with all of his disciples abandoning him. And what does Jesus do about this after he rises? He goes, he seeks out Peter and the other disciples to restore them. He finds them fishing. He's on the shore, and Jesus, so that they know who it is, says, Hey, how's the catch going? The disciples say, Well, we haven't caught anything. So Jesus says, go ahead and put the net on the other side. They put the net on the other side, and then they bring in so many fish, they cannot even fit into the boat. And because of this miracle, they know it's Jesus. The ever-impulsive Peter jumps out of the boat and swims to shore to meet up with Jesus. He is so excited. The other disciples get there as well, and then they share a meal together. We're going to pick off, pick up uh, after the meal. Look at John 21, verse 15. When they had finished eating, Jesus said to Simon, Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, take care of my sheep. The third time he said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt. Because Jesus asked him the third time, Do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my sheep. In this story, Jesus doesn't start with condemnation. He doesn't tell Peter everything Peter's done wrong. He simply goes to Peter personally and he asks Peter, Do you love me? And he says this three times. One time for each time that Peter denied Jesus. As if to say, you denied me three times and I forgive you three times. No matter how often you reject me, I will always love you. This fact was not lost on Peter. I think Peter was probably deeply saddened once he heard Jesus say it three times because he was reminded of his sin. Yet, even though saddened, he was restored. Jesus' agape love restored Peter. He didn't have to give him a long list of everything that Peter had done wrong. He simply, by asking, do you love me, restores him to the place that Peter has as the rock that the church is built on. Also, Also, another thing that happens here is that uh, Peter is asked simply to feed God's sheep. Jesus doesn't give Peter a whole list of all the things he's supposed to do in order to build the church. Jesus trusts the power of the Holy Spirit to talk to the heart and to talk to the soul. And Jesus simply says, feed my sheep. Jesus' ultimate act of agape love, we know, was to die on the cross. He died on the cross while we were still sinners. He even prays for the crowd and the soldiers. He says, Lord, forgive them for they know not what they do. Even as the disciples abandon him and flee to a room in hiding, Jesus still dies on the cross. Even as people hurl insults on him, even though no one seems to get what Jesus is doing, he loves them anyways. He trusts that in time the Holy Spirit will convict them and they will realize what he is doing on the cross. Jesus sacrificed himself for our sin. Once Jesus is resurrected and then he ascends into heaven, he gives the Holy Spirit to his followers so that they might love others with this agape love as Jesus had loved them. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, Christ is able to be in us to the point that it is no longer we who live, but Christ who lives within us. This is why our scripture for today starts with verse 7 saying, The end of all things is near. Therefore, Be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. Peter wants us to have a robust prayer life, to have this connection with God where we intimately know God, where we often make time in our day for prayer, to seek out God and to form that relationship. And it is through this connection with God that we are then able to love others with Jesus' love. Because we are connected to God we then become a conduit through the Holy Spirit where we are able to love people as Jesus loves people. Jesus' love flows through us. It is this connection to God that takes care of sin in our own life and others. We are powerless to fight the sin within ourselves and throughout the world without the power of Jesus. And it's a fool's errand to try to do so. Instead, we are to pray to God, to be connected to God, and have God's love flow through us. When, the, when we do this, this is when Jesus' agape love covers our sin. It is when God's love is able to flow through us to others. Our scripture goes on. After it talks about being in prayer and making that connection with God and loving others with God's love, with agape love in verse 8, in verse 10, it tells us to use the gifts we have received from God as faithful stewards of God's grace. To speak is one who speaks the very words of God and to serve with the strength that God provides. And then, in doing these things, in allowing God to work through us as his conduits, we bring glory to him. What do we do about sin in the world and within us? Nothing. Not by our own power. If we try to fight it on our own, we just heap more sin into the mix. Through God's love, however, all things are possible. We are to let God's love flow through us. And this love has the power to cover over a multitude of sins. This is why the early church spread like wildfire Sorry, like wildfire across Asia Minor. Christians loved people like Jesus loved them. They let Jesus' love flow through them. They were not afraid of sin. They did not feel like they needed to make sure everyone knew how sinful they were. I doubt they started a conversation with someone who had never heard about Jesus by asking if the person knew they were going to hell or not. Outcasts and sinners of all sorts flocked to the church because they were accepted and loved for who they were. And then it was through the power of this love that the Holy Spirit convicted people of their sins and they became transformed into more spiritually mature people. My sister who's also a covenant pastor, is a covenant pastor at Sela Covenant near Yakima. And uh, she shared a story with me this week when I was telling her about my sermon about um, one of her students who was a senior who was graduating. The senior who was graduating gave my sister a senior photo and uh, an invite to the graduation. And on that, there was a note. And on this note, my sister f- read and found out something that she had not known. Before my sister Um, started coming to the church, Uh, this girl, who we're going to call Kylie, was about ready to give up on God and give up in faith. You see, she heard that God loved people, but her faith didn't seem relevant to her anymore because the people around her that said they were Christians didn't communicate that type of life-changing love to her the way they claimed to do. But then she decided to go to youth group one last time. And as it turns out, my sister was there uh, as the new youth pastor. And Kylie says this, and I quote, God brought you into my life just when I needed you. You loved me right away, and I saw how much you loved God. And then I decided faith was still worth it. I don't know what would have happened if you hadn't come into my life. It ends up that Kylie ended up going faithfully, and frequently to both church and youth group, even though her parents didn't go to church for the last two years. This was because Rebecca created a safe and holy place. Rebecca's my sister. Students were able to come as they were and to be loved for who they were. And in time, after first loving and accepting Kylie, Rebecca was able to teach her lessons. She was able to direct her back towards God and rebuke her, to mentor her and challenge her. Sin was taken care of not by pounding theological formulas into Kylie's head. Rather, it was taken care of through the power of agape love. My sister writes, At this point of transition in her life, she isn't thinking about all the theological conversations we've had, the way we're focused on justice or the sin that she's overcome. As she prepares to move away from home and into a whole new life, well, she, have, she will have to confront brand new challenges to her journey with Christ. She remembers that when she most needed it, God showed her love through me and through our church. It is that love that brought her back, that love that has kept her, and that love that sends her out. Let's be a church that loves people with that Christ's love. Too often, I think, church can be the place where we try to measure up to one another. We try to look like we have it all together and to keep up with appearances. I remember as a kid, there was a couple in our church, and they would got divorced, although I didn't know it at the time. Um, neither one of them showed up for a few weeks. So I asked my parents, why, why haven't Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so showed up to church? And... Um, What my parents said is, well, they recently got divorced, so they probably feel really ashamed and embarrassed. Friends, church is the place where you should come when you are ashamed and embarrassed. We are to be the refuge for the outcast. When someone is ashamed of their sin, when they feel dirty, when uh, they are struggling with their identity, church should be the first place they go to to feel loved and accepted just as they are. Let us strive to love better. To let Jesus' love flow through us to others. To not be motivated by our fear of sin. To not be motivated by this fear that there's this immoral force sweeping across our country and our land, but rather to be motivated by the power and the hope of the love of Jesus Christ. When we fear, it only gives power to sin. Instead of fear, let us rest assured in our faith that our one and only hope Is in the salvific love of Christ Jesus. Above all, let us have faith, hope, and love. Today is our Communion Sunday. As we take communion, remember that this is Jesus' ultimate act of agape love. Jesus offered his body and his blood to the apostles at the Last Supper, he did this even to Judas who would betray him. He did this even to Peter, who would deny him three times. They didn't deserve Jesus' love, yet he offered up the wine and the bread anyways. Jesus offers his body and blood to the whole world, even though we killed him. Even though we nailed him to the cross, his love endures. Even though the disciples abandoned him, his love endured. Even though we walk away from him, yet still now, his love endures, because Jesus' love conquers all. When you take communion, remember, we do not fight sin on our own, the sin within our own hearts or the sin throughout the world. That's not how sin is dealt with. Rather, sin was defeated on the cross and ultimately will be done away with in the last days on Jesus' return. Submit yourselves to Christ. Let us together give up our battles and instead trust in the power of Jesus' love. When we drink from the cup of communion, we remember Jesus' death until he comes. We remembered we remember that it is his love his agape love which defeats sin by partaking in communion we agree to above all love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins to let it be Christ's love in us and through us which covers sin